Welcome back to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And before we launch into what I'm assuming is going to be a crazy episode, uh, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. That way you don't miss out on any of our upcoming up, upcoming mm-hmm. topics. <laughs> For today. Oh boy. Uh, wow. All right. Um, a little this too much ZOA. Another episode yeah. that's unofficially sponsored by The Rock's energy drink, ZOA. Mm-hmm. It's quite tasty. Wild orange. Go get yours. Give us a rating. <laughs> Write a comment. Tell us how good or bad we're doing. Uh, you can also DM us with questions or topic suggestions. And I love that people are taking advantage of this, by the way. We love to read your guys' comments. Uh, reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com. That's all spelled out. Or on our Instagram at act2writers. You can also find me, Tasha, on Instagram at Story Thursday or on Twitter at Tasha3.0. And me, at Josh Hallman on Instagram and Joshua Hallman on Twitter. And today, the reason why it's going to be crazy is because we're just talking about movies. Like, why movies work. I feel like we have both enjoyed a few movies in the last month or so. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to talk about why they work. Yeah, we're going to talk about three big movies that I think have come out around the time of the recording of this episode, which is Mortal Kombat, Nobody, and The Mitchells versus. The machine so three vastly different movies all of which work in their own very different ways so we just kind of thought we would talk about why these movies work and hopefully learn a little bit about them Mm -hmm. that we can use in our own writing i'm excited which movie do you want to start with i think we should start with nobody all right by the way, this is going to be full of spoilers so if you haven't seen mortal kombat nobody or mitchell's versus the machines you will quite possibly be confused but also go see them (laughs) and then come back and and listen to this and and talk about them with us well before we jump into this i just want to give you a quick update on this week in writing (gasps) okay which is really just turning into like this week in viewing because (laughs) this is not a writing thing so i've been talking to you about um the fast and furious franchise now for what seems like many years (laughs) and recently i just watched tokyo drift just the other day. Interesting like, choice. I'm going to watch Tokyo Drift. And I should also say that I, um, I'm watching all of the movies. <laughs> I'm back. I'm watching the entire... <laughs> Wait, just for fun or for research? I'm confused by the choice. Well, because they're all kind of blending together. And I kind of need to know how Fast and Furious got to where it is today. And so now that I'm watching it, and I'm right now I'm on Fast five which is the debut of the rock as i'm watching it i'm kind of seeing like how the set pieces are getting a little bigger how they're introducing more and more characters and i'm seeing it happen i'm watching it unfold Mm -hmm. but here's what's fucking crazy about this so i end up watching tokyo drift which is the third movie that was released in the fast franchise and then i watch fast four and i see that han who dies in Tokyo Drift mm. is in Fast 4. Mm. And I'm like, the fuck? And so I look this up and as it turns out Tokyo Drift actually takes place in like the future of the Fast and Furious franchise. It takes place between like movie 5 and 6. Why do you think they made that choice retroactively? 
because I think Han was such a cool character that they were like, we're going to bring him back and we're going to figure this out. It takes place in Tokyo. It has nothing to do with like, you know, the fabric of the Fast and Furious franchise. And I hear a lot of people say it's their favorite Fast and Furious movie. Tokyo Drift. Yeah. It's the only one I've seen. Okay. And I enjoyed it. Did you really? That's not true. I saw the first 10 minutes of Fast Five and turned it off. Oh, wow. But Tokyo Drift, I watched the whole thing. You have to keep going. Yeah, Tokyo Drift really leans into the the women in the car car scene in Tokyo. I don't remember that. <sighs> That's all. It's just weird. Are you finding, place. can I ask, are you finding that there's a repetition to the action scenes? That they feel all the same, even though they're escalating. No. Do they feel? They just, oh, interesting. No, not. A, they're fucking awesome. Oh, I'm. They're, I'm sorry. I feel like I've offended you by even asking. You that have question. offended me. It's, I'm <laughs> offended. You haven't seen these movies. You need to understand what I'm talking about. I feel like I'm talking about like the Star Wars of car movies, and I'm like, they have this lightsaber, and then all of a sudden, Dom Tretto drives through two buildings. It's amazing. I just can't. I just can't. The writing is so bad. Oh, uh, anyway. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. I will do this for you, Joshua. I will do this. I feel this. like I talk about Fast and Furious at least every week in this podcast. I think you do. I, just, I will I do this for a, you so that Tom I can be Toretto. on the same page. <laughs> God, I just, there's so many references I want to make. All right. I actually saw twi just randomly on Twitter today, someone was like, what is your favorite scene where people are at a table eating? And the first thing anyone ever posted was the fast franchise people when they're eating. at a table eating they're, yeah they're like a family eating outside at a barbecue or something so it's about family man <laughs> i i understand why people would be like these movies are ridiculous and it took me a minute to get into them but once you kind of just kind of step back and enjoy it for mm. what it is and by the way i think inglorious bastards has like the best eating scene but anyway we can move on very true all right let's talk about nobody so we're going to be asking each other questions mm -hmm. and we both agree that these movies work, right? I think so. Very much okay. so. Yeah. Like the Toretto family. So. <laughs> well, um, first, okay, let's introduce nobody. So nobody is directed yeah. by Ilya Nashler, which I'm not saying uh -huh. that name right, but he directed Hardcore Henry, which if you've not seen that movie, it's a movie shot entirely in first person. It's, a, it's an action movie shot entirely in first person. And that means you don't see the character, you just see their point of view. And it's very, very cool. And it makes you sick. And then it's written by Derek Kolstad, who of course wrote the John Wick trilogy. So that is nobody. It does not that we know of take place in the John Wick universe, but it certainly has a John Wick feel to it, which we will talk about. I'm sure. I definitely think the worlds are going to come together oh in the God. future. Like an I MCU, do. but with Derek Colstead. Yes. All right. So I guess this is a good place to start. My first question for you, by the way, as I was doing this research, I had an epiphany. So something I really love about this movie is that it's like the hint of the underground, right? Like they did this very, very well in John Wick and obviously and like this idea that there's just all this weird shit that's going on. It's really fascinating. You mean like with the Continental Hotel Correct. and John Wick and how this is like there's an auditor? Yeah, and it, it clearly sets up this underground world that I think is awesome. 
And so I was thinking to myself, I'm like, why, why does like Wick work so well? Why does nobody work so well? And so what I started to realize was that in Wick and nobody, also in the movie Taken, it's these characters who are trying to move on from something. So they're leaving this crazy world. We know that they came from somewhere, they're jaded, they're beat up, and now they're trying to like normalize into the real world for whatever reason. And so it starts creating this mystique about the world. And we know this world still exists and we wanna know more about this world. And so I was thinking to myself, all right, well, so those are characters moving away from the world. And then you have examples like Charlie's Angels or to a lesser extent, like Mission Impossible. Those are movies where characters are trying to like move into the organization where like you get propelled, you start realizing there's something out there. And we know as an audience that we are going to get the angels into this organization by the end of the movie. So there's kind of like this promise that we know where we're going. But I think what mm-hmm. nobody in Wick does so well is they just keep you guessing. And it's just like this, nobody's moving away from the organization. Charlie's Angels is moving into the organization. And there's a many examples of Charlie's Angels where people are like kind of get caught up in these like mysterious areas. And it just got me thinking that creating this mysterious underground world that we know exists, I think it's just really appealing because it creates a completely different dynamic because that underground world doesn't get Bob Odenkirk into trouble. Something else gets Bob Odenkirk into trouble, but we just know it's there. So the epiphany being is I think there's something really interesting about a jaded character who's out of the game and he wants a normal life. Mm. But we as the audience know that that's not who the character is. Right. There is. You're, you're right. I think it creates fantastic mystery to set it up that way. There's always that character. It's such a trope of the usually it's like the mobster who is out of the game and then is pulled back in or, or the the thief like yeah. in heist movies, right? He's out of the game, but gets pulled back in. But there's something different about what Derek Kolstad has created, which you're right there. What they're the game that they're out of is something he's invented. It's it's like its own universe of assassins that he only knows the rules to. And so it almost creates this fantastical world in a very grounded way that he gets to unfold slowly over the course of the movie so that you're constantly leaning in and wondering what that world was he was trying to escape versus if it's a heist movie or a mobster movie like we can't, we know what the mobster world and the the thief world is that that's just it's a it's a world we've seen in movies before so it's sort of less of an interesting trope than what Derek has done with these characters so i am just kind of reiterating what you said but you're right that that's a really interesting way of approaching that character which is so different than say like a James Bond as you were saying who is already in an organization and his story is not about the mystery of you know being an MI6 it's just his missions so it's a really cool setup that definitely works yeah you're right about it's like this underground world we don't know about i think creates the the mystery we need and by the way i was watching an interview with him and he was saying that Mm -hmm. as he wrote the script he didn't have rules of the world and he didn't Mm -hmm. have much of a plan and he just kind of embraced what it was and then people would ask him and the director questions on set and they didn't have any answers for it it just kind of was which is fucking crazy to me. Oh my God, that gives me anxiety thinking about that. <laughs> I mean, it just, it just absolutely like crumbles all of the rules and things that we've talked about with like mythology and creating this, creating yeah. that. It's like, you can just get around it. Well, what's so beautiful about Nobody is that 
there are hints of a mythology, if we want to call it that, but we don't get enough of it where you even need to create rules. I mean, a big part for me when I create mythologies and my big fantasy stuff is I have to do all that homework for myself, but you're not going to see almost like 90% of what I'm inventing because you only need to see what gets you from point A to point B in the movie. And he just sort of worked backwards where he yeah. only created what you needed to see in the movie and it just hinted at a bigger mythology which i think you can get away with in a grounded action movie like this but again that gives me anxiety thinking about it do you think nobody would have been the same if there was no underground well it's i mean where are the moments where it feels like there's an underground i think the gold is a really good point in my mind he was just working for the cia oh really so uh, a very real organization yeah oh so for me it was when you know he goes in to find that tattoo and then that old timer sees his tattoo and he just goes and locks himself in the room which i thought was a great moment and then also so when he's good talking on that very old um kind of radio to the rizza mm -hmm. and um yeah i always got a sense that there was like something a little deeper mm. yeah i guess the that moment where the veteran locks himself in a different room when he sees Bob's tattoo. A, it's just so great that nothing happens in that scene. It's not even an action scene, but it's so badass simply because of reactions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really, just a good lesson as a writer to remember. But yeah, I guess I just assumed because he was a veteran that maybe this guy had been like secret service or not secret service. Um, I don't know anything about the military. Like, yeah. <laughs> kind well, of uh what the fuck am i trying to say here well, this goes into what we were just saying like you were thinking he's more like mi6 or he is in like a james bond organization like something yeah. you know and then your mind takes the next leap because there's more to it so the rule of right. this is if you're creating something just maybe create your own mythology in your old your own grounded underground world not some thing yeah. with fucking fairies. No offense to fairies. I love fairies. I'm wow. just saying it can be... No offense taken. No, it can be convoluted in... <laughs> in uh, like, you can't have nobody where it's like he comes from, like, a magical underground. That would be the Tasha version for sure. Yeah, I was actually reluctant to even say that because I'm like, are we sure you're not working on that right now? <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> okay, I have a question for you, Tasha. Hit me. Is nobody different than John Wick? And if so, why or why not? I thought about this a lot when I was watching it because I remember you said that this is basically a copy paste from John Wick. And so I just had that in my mind when I was watching it. And emotionally, it's so different that it feels different. But I don't know if Derek Cole's to like had a bad experience as a kid with Russians, but like <laughs> Russians are always the bad guys. So there's that commonality. And then I think just the simplicity of the villain story feels very much the same, but the emotional drive is so different that it felt like a different enough movie for me. Cool. But like the movements are exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the simplicity works. Like that's, that was a big lesson from it. I think any, any, uh, good movie that's like an action thriller like this is like be as simple as you possibly can that's actually one of my questions to you which is Hit what me. do you feel like makes this film so simple well it's what i think about john wick as well where it's like oh john wick is going to get revenge because someone killed his dog that's it that's the fucking end of it and we get it and 
in this, it was the same thing for me where it was like, okay, hey, someone took his daughter's, uh, you know, keychain or whatever it was. I'm back. Like, my life sucks. By the way, the editing in this movie is awesome, I feel. Like Fantastic. How it just sets up everything in the first 30 seconds. So, yeah, I, just, I felt like it was just a really simple kind of entry back into the world. But you understand yeah. it because it's based off of emotion. Yeah. That's what's so interesting to me. It feels like they're really kind of only two acts of the movie. The first act is character setup of his life, Bob's life being terrible. And then the second half is just one long action scene. It's awesome. <laughs> that that we can kind of talk about a little bit later. But that also feels like what John Wick is. That first bit is all set up of his emotional state. The second half is jump started by his dog being killed and his car being taken and then we're on the ride the rest is just a giant action scene of him going from place to place killing people and that structure works yeah <laughs> apparently if you are so simple with what the character is and you really ground us and invest us in that emotional story then you can just do half a movie that's an action scene it's amazing by the way let me just say i think the writer is from wisconsin and that's not to say I would have liked, you know, I just automatically like people from Wisconsin, but I really like this movie. <laughs> I'm happy this movie exists. I don't think it's a bad movie. I know I've, I've said things like, oh, it's just like John Wick. I mean that in a great way because I love John Wick. John Wick is like one of my yeah. favorite movies. So what you were just saying about the essentially revenge mission and we were kind of exchanging, I think you were, you, you're like, it's falling down meets John Wick. You said that and it was genius. Oh, but thank you for, for attributing it to me. I said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely remember that. People just relate to revenge stories, especially now in 2021 where we're all bottled up and we want to get out. We're like, want to go the purge on everybody outside. You know, like I, I think there's some weird thing in everybody that has so much anger and you just want to fucking take it out. And that's what this movie does in a very simple way. It's this angry guy stuck in his routine. He needs to get out of it. And guess what? Some people broke into his house and they fucking stole something. Big mistake. And it is very interesting that the inciting incident, which is this desperate couple breaking into Bob's house to steal money for their dying mm -hmm. baby. It's a catalyst to a much bigger villain story. They have nothing to do with right. the villain plot. That pretty much, that whole story ends very quickly but because he wasn't able to get that aggressive energy out because he felt so bad for this couple, he gets it out on someone else. And that kind of becomes the inciting incident when he uh, fucks up this, this Russian boy. That's a good point. I didn't really even think about that. Why and or when do you feel invested in this movie? It was the second the little girl's like keychain was stolen. I just knew. Poor Bob Odenkirk. He needs to get back out there. That was for me when he, that was like the final straw. I, it was, I, I related to the character. I was like, I get it. I understand why he's going. He didn't do anything wrong. He's just trying to be a good guy. But that's, that's exactly when. And I think like we were just saying, it really ties into, it's an emotional thing. What about you? I was definitely getting there with that really epically edited opener where it's just, I really empathize with someone who, especially in you know, 2020, 2021, of a guy who's mm -hmm. just doing the same shit every day. And the separation he had with his wife was so sad. Like they literally have pillows separating yeah. them in bed that I felt for him there. And then 
I think the moment that really got me that really felt very interesting and, and grabbed me emotionally was when he almost almost hit the oh, burglar right. woman in the head with the nine iron or I don't know anything about golf. And he had this look of ferocity on his face that was unlike anything we'd seen from him before. And then he just completely lost it, went back to being Bob Bob and let the guys go. And that was so fantastically interesting to me acting wise that moment that I wanted to find out more. Okay, I'm changing my answer. You're right. You're <laughs> right. I felt for him. This kid thought he was a fucking loser. I just felt bad for him. Yeah, I mean, he was surrounded by he was surrounded by assholes in his own family. And so you, you definitely empathize with a character like that. It's tough. Imagine being like Jason Bourne and having your family hate you because they think you're a loser. You're so lame. Yeah, you're the worst. But anyway, and the, like like we were just saying, the editing, that opening was awesome. It gets you right in. You don't need to see these things at work that we all understand already. You just cut through it mm -hmm. real quick. Yeah, it's also about voice, right? I, I feel like that's something that they may be found in the editing. I'm not sure if it was in the script or not because I haven't read it yet, but I can definitely see that being written where you, you write a monotonous life of your character and that's your intro, but you write it in a monotonous fucking way, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, we're not seeing full scenes. We're seeing repetitive moments that build to make you feel that it's repetitive versus seeing it unfold as being repetitive. So that's, if you go back to our voice episode, we talk about making someone feel your emotion rather than tell them the emotion. I think that's a great example. Yeah. So why do you think the action felt so special in this movie? Because it did. I had a note about the action. My take on it was I thought they did a really great job of setting up an average person. I mean, listen, he's flying through like glass. He should be dead multiple times. But mm -hmm. in that very first fight when he's reintroduced back into the world, he's not like the incredible badass. It takes him a minute to kind of recalibrate himself and, and get moving again. And I thought that worked. And I liked that he was kind of the bare knuckle fighter. He's much mm -hmm. more gritty than John Wick. And I really liked that approach that he was, he was like blue collar John Wick. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what did you think about the action? Was it too gory for you? No, absolutely not. Uh, there was, I think, a couple moments I had to turn away because it was so gross. But I love it, those moments when they happen. Yeah, in a good way, right? Yeah, in a, yeah. In a good way. Yeah. yeah. And you're right. Like there, there was something so gritty to the action where like one image that sticks out at me is the guy on the bus who's like missing a bunch of teeth mm -hmm. and he just opens and you see that and you, it's just like little things like that, that color the fight that make you go, God, he like, Bob is such a badass. Um, and then when he, you know, gives the, he hits the guy in the neck with a pole and then gives him a tracheotomy in the same moment. Like there's just something so incredibly, I think unique and badass about that character who's breaking someone and fixing them at the same time. Yeah. And then I was just thinking broadly about the action and like the movements of the action. And like I said, I do feel like this movie is just simply two sections. One is intro to Bob. Second half is, is just action. And was really trying to pay attention to how the set pieces were built and it felt so incredibly satisfying that there almost feels like a three-act structure to the movements of the action where like the first act is bob is prey right the russians are coming for his family literally coming into his home bob is using like home appliances and things that we all have around the house to just 
kill a bunch of dudes. And then there's a reversal where he gets captured. So our hero fails and he gets captured and now we're in a car and he finds this really clever way to crash the car and kill everyone inside, mm -hmm. but he's exhausted. He's barely survived this himself. We get this actually like really great emotional information beat where he's like talking to the Russian guy about who he is. And we're finally getting information about yeah. what an auditor is. And he looks down and the dude's dead. So like, he still can't tell his story, <laughs> which emphasizes that theme of like this guy who nobody cares about or listens to, which is so great. So now he goes back home and he kind of cleans up the house, get his, gets his family to safety. And now we're in the second act because he is now the predator, right? There's a reversal again, where he is now going after the bad guy. And there's some logic holes here where, like, I don't know how he found the Russian mobster Doesn't money matter. place. Doesn't matter. Fuck it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> like, we're moving so fast at this point. I was just in. And then he single-handedly kills everyone, burns the billions of dollars, steals prices. Art. Like, it's just so fun. Yeah. And then there's, like, what I think is maybe, like, the biggest fuck yeah moment of maybe, like, any movie is where he, we go into the big bad guy's club and he's doing his karaoke thing and we hate him mm -hmm. so much and then you flip it to his point of view and Bob is just fucking sitting there <laughs> in front of him eating a steak dinner and he just looks like this soccer dad at a strip club. <laughs> so, and you're like, this is the ballsiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and that's just so cool and you're so excited by then. And then there's a third act where it's basically the duel between mm -hmm. them, right? Where he like challenges him at this strip, strip club karaoke bar and the rest is a car chase that leads to Bob's factory where it becomes a kind of rated R home alone. Yeah. And you know exactly what you're gonna get and you're so ready for it. And I think all of those movements are really interesting because it shows that A, there are movements there. Those are different sections of what is essentially one long action scene. It's continually building. There's a bunch of reversals in there and we're revealing character as we go. And I think that's why nobody to me works. Wow. Why do you not just start with this? Why do I talk <laughs> for so long? Yes, that is why nobody so works. Good. There's nothing more we can say after that. We need to move on. The end. All right. What are we doing next? Mortal Kombat. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't just yell it like Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. We talked a little bit about Mortal Kombat in the last episode. So very quickly, it was written by Greg Russo and Dave Callahan. Story by Greg Russo and Oren Uziel whose name I can never pronounce. Yeah. Um, produced by Atomic Monster, who's James Wan, Broken Road, New Line, Davis Entertainment, Threshold Entertainment Group. Like, a lot of producers are on this. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of financiers are involved. I don't want to step on your toes with questions, but I feel like the most interesting way in is to just talk about the logline of Mortal Kombat on IMDb, oh. which is that <laughs> it's this. MMA fighter Cole Young seeks out Earth's greatest champions in order to stand against the enemies of Outworld in a high-stakes battle for the universe. Which I thought that logline was interesting because Cole is not actually the main character of this movie, in my opinion. And I know we're talking about why these movies work, but I think just a small rant about why this doesn't work for me. This is so crazy. One of my questions is, Tasha, who's the main character of Mortal Kombat? All right. Yes, thank you. I will tell you who I think the, more, the main character is. I don't think it's Cole. Uh, 
I feel like Sonya Blade is the main character of this movie. What? I think she, yes, what? yes it is. I think she is the one who's driving the entire story forward. So Cole is this MMA fighter who doesn't want any part of this whole champions thing, right? He just wants to keep his family safe. Yeah. And if he was given the choice, he wouldn't even be in this movie at all. Which, by the way, is kind of a, a, an okay place for your main character to be when we meet them. But I do think your reluctant main character still needs to be causing the story to happen. Or else they are not the protagonist of your movie. So the reason that I would pitch this Sonya Blade is actually the main character is for four different reasons. One. Oh my God, four. <laughs> <laughs> so spe specific. All right. <laughs> One, she is the one with all of the information. She knows this whole Mortal Kombat story, what it is, why we need to find champions, and how if we don't do this, we're all going to die. Two, she's the one leading the entire hunt for these champions. As I said, Cole wants nothing to do with this. He just wants to protect his family. Sonya wants to protect the world. Three, Sonya launches the story into motion. She is the one who wants to go to Raiden's temple. She's the one who gets Kano to lead them there. And going to Raiden's temple is actually what sets the, the really the whole story into motion. And then finally four, Sonya can outfight everyone that she's put up against. Whereas Cole is deliberately painted as a consistent loser yeah. in all of his MMA fights. And he's a bad fighter. He's a reluctant hero. He causes nothing in the story to happen. So no, he is not our main character. Hmm. That makes gotcha. sense. Who do you think is the main character? Well, after that riveting pitch, I understand. <laughs> Why isn't Sonya the main character? Because she's not related to Hiro Sonata, who is Scorpion. Yeah, but that doesn't mean she can't be the main character. I agree. Here's the thing. I felt like the main character kind of flipped throughout the movie. Cole. Oh, interesting. I thought I thought it was actually like Sub-Zero at one point. Cole mm. at another point. Sonya at another point. Almost Raiden at one point. I, I just, mm -hmm. I, I thought it was going to be Liu Kang. Just because mm -hmm. I think I was conditioned from the 90s movie. I didn't know. I guess, I, I guess the main character was Cole. But I, it didn't feel like it was Cole. No. For all the reasons you just explained. Yeah. And you may have, shocker, swayed me into thinking that it's Sonya. <laughs> What's really strange about this is that I could see the the whole storyline for Sonya being kind of merged with Cole, where she is this person who doesn't have the powers. And okay, Cole can do his own thing, but Sonya being the person who doesn't have powers and eventually acquires the powers and then takes over. Like it, that's the Sonya story that you would rather see. Or that feels like it should be the movie. The Cole thing was, he definitely was like the reluctant mm -hmm. hero for, and I, I, you know, we never go into, I know how difficult this is, I, and I, so I'm not trying to criticize anything, but maybe a few beats longer than yeah. he should have been. Right. I agree with that as well. And I sort of was never sure why he was a reluctant hero. And it's not to say you can't have a reluctant hero, and you that you can't start with someone who's not a good fighter and build them up to someone who's an epic fighter. Um, it just did feel like Sonya became the main character and we lost the Cole story mm -hmm. entirely. I think what's interesting, kind of a question that I have is, 
I think one of the main reasons this movie works is kind of, I think HBO Max knew exactly why it worked. And so they released it, they released like the first seven minutes of the movie before the movie ever came out on HBO Max, which I've actually never really heard of happening before. If I'm being totally honest, my initial reaction when the seven minutes were released was that I felt it was a bad sign. And I felt Me like, uh-oh. They don't believe in the movie. <laughs> they don't believe in the movie. And so the opening's fucking incredible, I thought. I really loved the opening. And I don't want to say it's the best part of the movie, but I can see that it really draws you in. And yeah. so that's why I think they released it. And I don't know if HBO Max maybe had as, enough faith in the movie. And they knew. They are like, we're going to release this. It's great. I think it's really smart of them because the previous movies were so B movie quality. They were just so bad that I'm sure so many people had no intention of seeing this movie. Yeah. But then releasing those first seven minutes, you're right. The cold open is actually, it feels like a totally different movie than the rest. It's so character driven. It's so realistic and emotional and just so well done that you're like, oh, oh, immediately you're like, oh, this is a different movie than what I expected it to be. I really want to watch the rest of this. Which is great. That's a perfect segue into a question I have for you. Okay. Do you think that as long as this movie contained gore and swearing, that people would love it? I struggle with this a lot because usually I am all for character being the thing that keeps you into any story and that everything else is just icing on the cake. But this had was very light on character and I still really enjoyed it. And I'm trying to wrap my mind around why that works. And the thing I came up with, which I don't know <laughs> if I fully believe, but the thing I came up with was really about that seven minute cold open or however long it was, where the awesomeness comes out of very good fight choreography mm -hmm. that also had these really bloody kills that constantly makes you squirm and gasp, which is exactly what you want from a Mortal Kombat movie because it's all about the fatalities and the finishing moves. So the fight has to be really bloody, but also Hero Sonata, like they, if you know, they do a lot of wide shots in that opener to just let him fight. And it's so cool, the fight choreography yeah. that they do. And it's so charged with emotion because you have just seen him with this amazing family that he loves so, so much. And they're so peaceful. And then for them to be killed in such a horrible way, you are so emotionally there for that scene. The, the reason why I pose this question is because like what you, something you had just said where you just want to see fatalities. You want to see yeah. badass fighting like the video game. I think I think people kind of got screwed by the 90s release where it was really light on everything. And mm -hmm. so when this movie, the Red Band trailer came out, everyone was like, this was the movie I wanted as a child. That's true. That's ultimately what made me so excited by the movie is not the character shit, but all of the crazy fatalities and always being like, what are they going to do next? What are they going to, ooh, that character's yeah. been introduced. These are his moves. Are they going to use them? How are they going to use them? Yeah. So you had no problem when Kano beat someone and he said Kano wins or when. I loved some, it. So when, and they were like, fatality out of nowhere. Yes. You were good. I loved okay. it. I loved it so much. But I, the self-awareness there, I think, and it was like perfectly timed to me that it felt appropriate in those moments yeah i i will say that i mean there was a lot of clever moment, moments in it like 
getting some character moments out from the video game characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interestingly, and I know we're supposed to talk about why it works, but <laughs> not why it doesn't work. But I, I feel like because that seven-minute opener was so strong, I would almost want the movie to be more about Hero Sonata, who becomes Scorpion, and Cole. Like, if they had made it about those two more, because all we get now are just flashes where, like, you almost don't even know it's Hero because the flashes are so quick. That, But if it was more like he was training him from beyond the grave and, like, giving him skills and, and hope and, like, that was yeah. the story. Oh, man. So, Beautiful. chef's kiss. I know the chef's kiss. I don't <laughs> want to go, like, I don't want to get too too off course here. But what you just said is speaking to my soul. I love the universe, universes of any movies. I think the Goonies should have a universe. I think Mortal mm -hmm. Kombat should have a universe. I think Pirates of the Caribbean should have a universe. Like, there should be standalone yeah. movies of all of these different characters, side characters, and and. and I think things should be treated as a Marvel Cinematic Universe. Me too. Very similar to how John Wick is, by the way. Yeah. I'm very much ready for the MKU. I want the Mortal <laughs> Kombat <laughs> Universe. Well, well, this, <laughs> you know, I do feel like they went all in on Mortal Kombat, and they could have gone with the universe. They planned four more. Oh, is that right? There are four, four more. Four more Mortal Kombat movies coming. Planned, Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're getting the MKU whether you like it or not. <laughs> All right. Another another thing that is a why this movie works. We talked about budget, you and me. So I – this is all very – you know, this is what Google tells us. This is not what's, what's real. But it gives us numbers at mm -hmm. least to play with where Google says that the budget for Mortal Kombat was $55 million. And it made back about $67 million, which is not including how many HBO Max subscriptions they may or may not have gotten to watch this. But apparently more people watch Mortal Kombat on HBO Max than they did Godzilla vs. Kong. Wow. So that does say something. So it's a $5 million budget. And I think one of the reasons this movie works... $55 million budget. Sorry, $55 million. And I think one of the reasons this movie works is that they made some really smart choices for that budget which for a fantasy movie is actually a really modest budget. I think by comparison, uh, Hunger Games, $78 million budget. The first Harry Potter movie, $125 million. 47 Ronin, which was another kind of fantasy uh, samurai mm -hmm. movie, $170 million. So $55 million is a really modest budget for a fantasy action movie. And I think one of their solves was to limit the settings we had to go to they wrote it to also fit the small budget, I think is is kind of the point I'm trying to make versus just trying to make a big movie <laughs> wherein everything just feels mm -hmm. really cheap, which I feel like is kind of what the older Mortal Kombat's did. So, for example, the finale in this movie takes place in the same gym that we open in, which sucks because it makes the world feel small, but it also saves a ton of money and allows them to have a more epic fight. Act two takes place in this very plain desert Raiden's temple, kind of in the middle of nowhere, which is very helpful because we don't have to build a lot of CG like trees or whatever the fuck. Um, we're just in the middle of nowhere. And then they create a story reason for why our characters can't leave 
<laughs> this really desert setting, right? They have to stay here and train or they'll be killed. So that's a story reason why we can save money on sets. And then in the third act, we still want to have some really cool video game settings and stuff, because if you don't know the game, there are a bunch of different arenas you can go to that are really dynamic and just insanely big and crazy. So we know we need that aspect somewhere in this movie, but we can't afford it. So what do they do on a $55 million budget? They say, all right, we have to separate the bad guys so that we can kill them easier. And then Raiden kind of uses his lightning portal powers to zap our heroes to different arenas for a very brief amount of time while they fight off yeah. the bad guys. So we get to have a taste of these arenas without having to spend a shit ton of money on CGI building a million shots in this place. So normally I don't really compliment low budget work in a way or like how you can spot low budget work, but I think the writing of this story was a really clever way to make their budget work for them. So I think that's a really great lesson for writers. I just want to say one last thing. Sub-Zero? Yeah. He doesn't kill the baby and he doesn't kill Jax. Are we sure? Like he would not kill both of them? Like he wouldn't know where the baby is? He didn't see the baby. Okay, I'll give him that. But he just lets Jax live? I think he thought Jax was dead. Yeah, that's my point. Who comes back from two arms being ripped apart? Yeah, I know. I just was like, is Sub-Zero even good at his job? What is he doing? <laughs> that's not a bad point. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying anything more. Okay, moving on to The Mitchells versus The Machines. Maybe my favorite movie of 2021. <laughs> okay, go. All right. Mitchells vs. The Machines was written and directed by Michael Rionda and Jeff Rowe, produced by Lord and Miller, who were the geniuses behind the Lego movie and Spider-Verse. And Michael Rionda, just some interesting backstory. He was also the voice of the little brother, Aaron. He was a cartoonist and a director, which those are usually the same things in animation. So um, he was a director for the animated series Gravity Falls, for which he was also a writer on some of the episodes. And if you haven't seen that show, it is fantastic and very critically acclaimed. Jeff Rowe, also a writer on Gravity Falls. And he also wrote on the animated show Disenchantment on Netflix. And to be honest, those are their big credits. And it's not that those aren't huge shows. To me, I was surprised that they didn't have a much bigger uh, filmography, I guess is what I'm saying. And that doesn't indicate that they didn't have years of development work to get to this point of being produced. But to me, it was like, oh, all right. Like, these guys, these guys can do it. We can do it. It was like one of those hopeful stories. I think we feel like we take ourselves out of the race because we feel like we don't have the credits. And I don't think we have to do that. We just have to have the dream. <laughs> you just have to lo know Lord and Miller and have a dream. <laughs> exactly. They have been working on this movie apparently for six years. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I have a question for you now that you've just done that intro, which it just erased one of my questions. When you look at this movie, do you consider this a Lord and Miller film? I kind of would actually. Yeah. Sorry, Michael Rionda and Jeff Rowe. Yeah, big time. No, I feel bad about it too. Like, I feel like they're, Lord and Miller, who I freaking love, are the ones who are associated with it. And I, and I was, got me thinking, like, are they that big that now, you know, it's like if you're J.J. Abrams, you're like, oh, I'm going to go see this J.J. Abrams movie. And you kind of kind of have a sense of what you're in store for, like a little mm -hmm. adventure, maybe some mystery. Sure. Has Lord and Miller fallen in that category? 
I think so because you're right, there is a particular visual style and it's not that Michael Rionda and Jeff Rowe didn't create so many of these moments themselves, but there's some repetition in terms of the way jokes are handled that you can feel coming from Spider-Verse and Lego yeah. Movie. In particular, there were a few cuts where like the cut itself was the joke, right? And that is such a such a trend in Lego Movie and Spider-Verse that it felt like a Lord and Miller moment. And so I think that's partly why it feels like a Lord and Miller movie. Yeah, I love them. I think they're geniuses. I think so too. All right, Tasha. Hit me. So you like this movie. Love it. How much of the visual style contributed to your enjoyment of the film? At first, I'll be honest, I was kind of out. I did not like the first maybe like 10 minutes of the movie. Really? Yeah. All the layering over of YouTube videos and memes and ugh, just like YouTube memeiness. I was like, oh, I don't think this is for my generation. <laughs> I wow. don't think this is my sense of humor. Her videos, for instance, like I sort of have the same reaction as her dad. I'd be like, oh, God, you are not going to make a living off of these shitty videos. They're so <laughs> terrible. Um but when the second act hit and it became and they sort of toned down that crazy visual style mm -hmm. a bit more i was like okay i'm in it's just kind of on the side now it's not what the story is about whereas it felt like in the first act it was like what the story was about yeah i guess i think this is really interesting i think kind of going back to lauren miller the stamp it was something like visually i was in i was like oh this is really cool mm -hmm. and just kind of how the animation was unfolding Interesting. So you really liked that crazy style. I mean, there's no doubt that it was crazy, but I got used to it pretty quickly. And I just thought it was very unique. A voice, if you would. It was definitely a voice and it was definitely a, a choice they made that was that I that I did get accustomed to and really liked. Interestingly, Michael Rionda, by the way, if you follow him on Twitter, you will see that he posts a lot about the movie and some of the behind the scenes stuff. And it's really great to see a lot of his posts and, and describing some of the process. And one of the things he posted about was at the very end of the movie, the whole family has come together. They've gone through this adventure together and they've grown as a family and they have this big hug by the car as, as Katie's going off to college. And in the original version that they had, they had this huge, like, it was just so style over substance. It was just like so much of the, cr the crazy drawings and everything was, how do I say it, it sort of looked like they were trapped in a sigil or something mm -hmm. like it was just it was just a lot of crazy visuals is what I'm trying to say and what's interesting is they ended up cutting that because while it was very beautiful Rianda says it was distracting and made the emotions work less well so he posted it on his Twitter so you can go and check out what it originally was because he loves it so much but I think it's interesting that they did start to pare back some things because it was getting in the way of the emotions and that's definitely how I felt in the first act wow okay so let me just jump into this and tell you obviously I love this movie and something that really hit home to me was the whole like father-daughter relationship and let's just ignore for a fact that I'm emotional about father stuff anyway. So this this was like yeah. this was like the fucking tsunami of uh, you know my emotions just coming together. So which by the way I obviously have a daughter, which is why I'm saying that. Did I not say that? <laughs> I, I I mean I think anyone who listens knows okay. that already. Okay, okay. Um, but I was uh, trying to clock like when you might cry when I was watching it. Uh -huh. But then I ended up crying so much, I was like, I'm just losing track of when you might be crying because it's just all so beautiful. Wait, why did you cry? Because did it relate to any of your own personal experiences? 
I actually kind of got depressed after watching. Holy it. cow, really? Yeah. Yeah, family stuff always gets me. No, I do, I wouldn't say I to I totally relate to the the story of the movie, which which is, you know, parents who or a father in particular who doesn't understand their daughter and has caused a rift and causing them to and they have to come back together. I, I we're moving away from the point which yeah. was where you cried because you can more relate to the story. So well, I want you to talk. It was it was later in the movie and the the main thing that really got me was the emotional moment where he's like, "We used to sing this song together." And Yeah. And so I obviously don't have a daughter in college, but I do have a little girl who I do sing songs with at this point and we listen to certain <gasps> soundtracks and this and that. So when that was set up in the movie, I was like, "Oh my gosh. Oh fuck." Uh-oh, I know where this is going to go. I know, I already know. And then when it uh, hit again at the end and they were just saving the day and they're singing this song, I was just like wiping my eyes because I just knew. <laughs> I was like, this is, I'm not, I'm not going to have these songs anymore. I'm going to have to save the world with my daughter in order for us to sing together. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> so they, they did a really good job, I think, in terms of just kind of nailing very subtle as well as very uh, blatant emotional beats with families. I agree. And it sounds like from Rhonda's posts on Twitter that a lot of these stories come from his own experiences with his family and dealing with some of these real life issues. Yeah. And that's really interesting. There actually he is he posted pictures of his father crying at the movie premiere. Oh. And it was very it was very sweet and sad and beautiful oh my god but yeah Jeez. all right well for me a big cry moment is when when she finally finds out what failure has always been alluded to that happened in her dad's life and it was that he built this house oh. and that was his dream yeah and then he leaves it for his daughter and the, the mom is like i'm so sorry i know it's hard and he's like it's not hard it's easy I'm just like, oh my God, family, oh God. I know. <laughs> Sacrifice. So those are really big moments for the characters, but I feel like sometimes when you're writing or when I'm writing and you're trying to really get those emotional moments, a lot of times they're not, they're unrelatable. They're maybe they're a little over the top. They're so just on the head or like on the nose. And mm -hmm. it was just a good reminder that all of these emotional moments, a lot of them that really hit are just like the very subtle accuracies in family life. Yeah, taken from their real life experiences. You got to do that. Moving on from that, I want to jump into some story thing, a story Ooh. thing. Is so I think we both agree that the screwdriver moment worked at the end. Yeah. Why does that work so well? Michael Rianda posted that Chris Miller actually pitched this this screwdriver solve. And he said it started with a logic problem because they knew that at the end of the movie, Rick is trapped in a pod away from everyone else and it's like how the hell does he get out of that pod? And so Chris Miller worked backwards to make it a bigger payoff. And that is an interesting way of going about it. <laughs> um, that Like, oh, fuck, we need to get him out of this thing. Well, let's give him the exact screwdriver he needs. But okay, we can't just have him have the exact screwdriver. We have to build it into the story. Mm -hmm. And so they just went back and like, retroactively added the screwdriver as part of a story element and it actually works really well and in fact paul my boyfriend when we were watching it as soon as that happened he's like oh man that's so convenient but i don't even care <laughs> you know like, it's, 
<laughs> because you don't because they did such a good job at making the screwdriver an emotional thing mm -hmm. like all this family all hated the fact that they got screwdrivers for their significant birthdays and anniversaries and uh dad it's like just a relic of him being this handyman and uh he doesn't understand us and then oh this is gonna save the day yeah uh, yeah i think everyone got really cheers at that moment because of the emotions that they added retroactively i had tried to do that in one of my scripts and i don't think it landed as well as the <gasps> screwdriver moment and i've been trying to figure Can you out talk about it sure and uh i i had in a script that it was between a father and daughter uh, oddly and the daughter's just completely annoyed with the father and she uh they go out to dinner for their like father daughter day and he breaks out a flashlight and he starts looking at a menu in a very dark restaurant and she gets completely annoyed she's like i can't believe you brought the fucking flashlight flash forward to way later in the script and father daughter are in like very in a very dire situation they're fucked they're stuck they can't get out and he ends up using uh the flashlight to like save them basically because they couldn't see something mm -hmm. he breaks out the flashlight and he's just like oh my god the flashlight break it out blah 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 and it didn't land as well as the screwdriver and i don't know why how many times did you hit the flashlight in the script do you remember it was only once it was in the beginning and it was at that moment it was on a keychain. I think that's why. I should have hit it again. You got to hit it again. Oh, my God. The life of that script may have been different. <laughs> so the rule of threes is something to think about. You got to hit something three times because that's that's how it builds a structure. That's a structure, right? Mm -hmm. The intro, the middle beat where it pays off in some, some small way or builds to, to becoming a different thing. And then the third beat where it pays off because... He uses it to get it out of the pod. Yeah. It's a great moment. It's a great moment, but also so convenient. But the convenience is part of the joke, too. They build that in, which is very handy of them. Yes, <laughs> they build that in. And um, like the Seth Rogen comedies used to do this, where something would be completely absurd and they would call it out. Oh, my God, why are you coming in my house with a monkey on your back? And then you can get away mm -hmm. with any joke after that. It's absolutely true. I was going to say something that I'm writing right now. There are some convenient things that happen. And the note I keep getting back is like, we don't buy that this convenient thing is happening, but we would buy it if they called it out. Mm. And that's, that's it. That's the salt. Like if you just call it out, you can get away with it. Yeah. No, I, I tend to uh, kind of lean on that sometimes a little too often. Yeah, but it can work. Uh, can I mention another moment in the movie that <laughs> comes from Michael Rianda's Twitter feed again? <laughs> yeah, I'd be offended if you didn't. All right, my favorite part of the entire movie is <laughs> just thinking about it makes me laugh. I'm sorry. When uh, they're on their road trip and the dad wants to stop to go on this very innocent uh, mule ride <laughs> down into the canyon, and it cuts. To, he he says, "Oh, what could? What's the worst that could happen?" <laughs> and then it cuts to just absolute disaster. It's a huge storm. There's a poor like donkey in the river dying trying to swim to get away and <laughs> it's one of the funniest we we like rewound it and watched it like three times and rianda says that they actually got so many notes to take this out of the movie because it was quote unquote the most expensive joke in the movie because it had rain it had water effects and it was just kind of a fraction of a moment so a lot of people tried to get rid of it and they kept pushing to add it and keep it 
and it paid off because in the first screenings that they had, it just killed. Yeah. People loved it. And that's just another hopeful story to, you know, stick to your guns and things that you believe in. Perfect. In conclusion to all of this, I have one yeah. final question. Okay. Do you wish you would have seen any of these movies in the movie theater? All of them. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> I mean, right? That's the only answer to, to give. Yeah. Me too. The only answer I would believe. Oh, man. Me too. All right. Quote of the day for today is great writing gets you meetings. Great concepts get you a sale. Great characters get you jobs. All three get you a career. F. Scott Frazier. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for lots more awesome <laughs> writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. And me still at Josh Holman or Joshua Holman on Twitter. And as always, the Act Two podcast is a production of Act Two, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Bag, which you can find on Spotify. Mm -hmm.